All right, let's start with a word of prayer um, this today. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to you. We are eternally grateful for um, your love towards us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your strength. We thank you for the privilege to gather again. Um, we just want to thank you because from the beginning, beginning of this year, week in, week out, we've gathered. Um, we've only had to miss one. Uh, this was maybe some two or three weeks ago. But Lord, you have been faithful. You have kept us. You have shown us your mercy. You have granted us understanding in the things we, we, you placed in our hearts to study about. You've taught us. You've instructed us. Jesus, we are grateful. We ask Heavenly Father that as we, you know, go proceed into tonight's session, that you speak to us in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your ministry spirits, um, your angels that are with us. We thank you because you've sent your angels to bring everyone who ought to be part of this study. And Lord, tonight or this today's study is, a, is an amazing time in your presence. Thank you for your grace to speak your words with simplicity, with power and in truth, with utterance given by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, we have prayed. Amen. All right. Amen, amen, amen. Good evening one more time, everybody. So we're just going to go right in uh, so that we can maximize time and, um, you know, keep to time today. Okay. So just by way of recap, right, we have started, we started rather a, um, a study um, last week, right? Yes. We started a study. We started a study on our hope in Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, last week we looked at a lot of things, and I I I, I believe we um, a lot doctrinal, and it was important to establish that foundation because first of all we don't assume that everybody knows this, um, and just like Paul was speaking where we read from First Corinthians chapter fifteen, Paul began to address the people who claimed that there was no resurrection from the dead, and he had to debunk that because if they said if you say there's no resurrection from the dead, that means Jesus Christ did not resurrect. And if Jesus Christ did not resurrect, that means our faith is in vain and that um, the whole gospel were preaching in vain. And he went on to say something powerful in verse 19, that if only we have hope in this world, then we are of all men most miserable. And that means that our hope in Christ transcends beyond this world, world all right? And then we spent some time looking at um, the hope of glory, uh, of our coming of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw how that our, our salvation is all-encompassing. The death of Jesus Christ is all-encompassing. Just as the sin of man affected the en entirety of man, so also the um, salvation that Jesus Christ offers affects the entirety of man and when i say the entirety of man what i mean here is man is spirit soul and body so the sin of man affected his spirit his soul and his body it affected the spirit because he was separated from god and that's what we refer to as 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 death as spiritual death it affected his soul because um he began to experience emotions and other things that hitherto he was he would never experience and god didn't design for him to experience so things like fear was never part of god's design you never see anywhere that adam was afraid up until when he ate the, the forbidden fruit up until when he sinned you never see anything that adam like adam had um, low self-esteem or was depressed or, or anything like that so his sin affected his his soul um and thirdly sin affected his body so you see that um, his body, he began to die I, I and mean, began to physically die, you know, 
um, which was not God's original intention. And somebody asked me, well, if man was not supposed to die physically, was it, do you, does that mean Adam was supposed to be alive till now? I don't have the question for that. The Bible doesn't give us explicit answers to a lot of things. So we'll leave that until we see Jesus Christ. But we walk based on what we know revealed from scripture. Um, but it affected his body. You know, sickness began to come in, which was never part of, of, of Adam's experience. It was, it was never part of the way God um, designed man. But sickness began to affect his body because of the sin. And in fact, what we see is that the lifespan of man gradually decreased from Adam down to our generation now. All right. Um, so sin affected his his soul, his spirit, his spirit, his soul, and his body, and so also the salvation of the salvation that Jesus Christ brings affects our spirit, our soul, and our body. And I explained last week that that salvation affects our spirit instantly because um, we are, we have a, re, a regenerated spirit, we have a new spirit. The Bible calls it the new man, and when he says new, it means new, not renovated, not patched not um, secondhand or fairly used. No, it means brand new man. All right. That is our spiritual reality. We are entirely new in Christ. Now, salvation also affects our soul. And the Bible calls it the renewing of the of the mind. All right. Um, it says we should receive the engrafted word, which is able to save our soul. All right. So there's a salvation of the soul. And that salvation of the soul is what the Bible says we should not be we should not be conformed to this world, but we should be transformed. That is a process, a process of transformation. And how do we get transformed by the renewal, by the renewal of our mind? And what is the instrument God uses to renew our mind? That is the word of God. So the word of God renews our mind, and that is a process, a process. Thirdly, salvation affects our physical body. Now, aside the benefits of our access to Christ, which we, which we can experience now um, in, the, in our physical body, right? And in that sense, I'm referring to, you know, the strengthening of our physical body. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit will quicken our mortal bodies. So that experience is possible. But ultimately, the salvation of our soul is when we receive a new body. All right, and the Bible explains that when we are caught up with the Lord, we'll receive a new body. Um, mortality will be swallowed by immortality. All right, and we, so we looked at all of this last week. And please, if you did not, uh, if you're not around last week, or even if you were around, I just want to refresh your memory and you know gain more insights. Go ahead and listen to the recording on our podcast. Okay, so where we stopped of stopped at last week, which is where we're going to pick up today, is after seeing all of these great things that ha that um, that happened to us, or because of um, our salvation, right, and our union with Christ, um, and the hope of glory that we have, what then is the implication of this hope in our lives today? Because you know how Romans says that you don't hope for what you already see, meaning that if you are hoping for something, that means you don't have it yet. Um, I have a pencil. Right, I, I keep using this pencil as an example, but I have a pencil in my hand. The fact that I have this pencil means that I, I don't need to hope for a pencil because I already have it in my hand. But if I'm hoping for a bicycle, for instance, that means I don't have a bicycle um, in my possession. So it's something I'm hoping for. Suggestive of the fact that everything we hope for does not yet <clears throat> is not yet in our possession. However, there's an expectation of for it. So this is our hope in Christ, right? The expectation of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the expectation of the glory that will be revealed, the expectation of who we will 
the revelation of ourselves that we will have because um bible says we do not know what we would look like when he appears but we know that when he appears we'll be like him so that expectation has an implication in our lives today and this is where i want us to pick up to today's bible study uh, i want us to see the implication of our expectation in christ jesus all right and i want to start taking a look at that um at, um at that tonight what is the implication of our hope in christ i mean current implication today you know if you are expecting something um let me say for instance brasilas you are i promise you that i promise you a brand new car a 2021 mercedes-benz all right or 2022 sorry mercedes-benz brand new car but i tell you that oh let's i, I pro just promise you that it's going to come um in in january you're going to have it in january between now and january because of the expectation you have for that new car your mindset number one will change you would stop looking at yourself as I, I don't know if you have a car now so please for my example let me assume you don't have a car just for this example all right um you you stop looking at yourself as someone who does not have a car just because of a promise and an expectation that you have so the the car has not yet come into your hand but the expectation of that car changes your mindset even toward towards yourself and and towards circumstances so let's assume you are walking on the road and somebody splashes water on you you if before now before this promise you might feel bad and say ah this guy splashed on me because i don't have a car and you might be a bit downcast but next time there that happens because you have an expectation the that experience doesn't weigh down anymore because there's an expectation that that you have in your heart for your own car coming and it's just a matter of time all right so the expectation influences your disposition towards circumstances. That's what I'm trying to see. Now, also, this same expectation um, makes you behave in a certain way, all right? Um, you be, begin to behave in a, just in a particular way. There's a way you, you behave. And there are some things you probably start doing. Maybe you go, go ahead and look for a key holder. You maybe want to buy a key holder for your car key. Uh, maybe you also say, well, I like, I like, this particular kind of seat cover, you know, um, then you go ahead and buy that seat cover and maybe you go and buy, go ahead and buy a sticker for your car, you know, just some activities that reflect your expectation. All right. And it is the same thing too, with the expectation we have for our Lord Jesus Christ, that as we expect his coming, as we expect the manifestation of glory, of his glory in our lives, when he comes, there's a way we behave just so, such that even situations don't no longer weigh us down because of that hope we have in Christ Jesus. Do you get what I'm saying? So in my example, just like I said, if let's say Brother Silas was walking down the road and someone drives by and splashes him water, because of his expectation of a car that is coming in January, he will not be disturbed by the water that someone splashed him. He just does, you know, clean it off and move on, move on with his life. And that's the same way as believers, because of our, our expectation in Jesus Christ, when circumstances hit us or when things come against us, we are not weighed down by those things because we have an expectation. That's what Paul says. He says, um, let, let me even read the scripture. This is not part of my study, but I just want to read it because of how we, we started off. So if you read, um, if you read, 
1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse, let me, let me show you this. It says, verse, um, verse 6 says, For God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the glory, light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Verse 8 says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. How will somebody be troubled on every side and yet not be distressed? He says, we are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are cast down, but not destroyed. He says, always bearing about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Let me stop there. So Paul said that they were, they were, he was perplexed, but not in despair. He was persecuted, but not abandoned. Um, he was troubled on every side, but not di distressed. How will somebody go through these unpleasant experiences in life, and yet it will have an Im impact on him? It's because there's a hope that he keeps his eyes focused on. And this is why it's, it's super important. And I know that um, this is not something that is taught in church very often, but it's an integral part of our conviction as believers that there is a hope we have in Christ Jesus. And that expectation, right, causes us to respond differently to the situations of life. All right. So this is what we want to look at today. Um, just how this hope affects our situation, uh, affects our responses in life, in life and our disposition towards um, the circumstances of life and how we should really view life um in 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 its entirety how we what is our outlook and our approach towards life all right okay so i'm going to i'm trying going to try to be quick today um but also to you know touch some some important issues first of all let's read hebrews chapter 6 verse 16 to 20 hebrews chapter 6 verse 16 to 20 it's been a while i heard somebody read so please um if you're on zoom and you can turn there. Please quickly turn to Hebrews 6 and read for us. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16 to 20. The book of Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, read verse 16 to verse 20. <clears throat> Anybody should go ahead and read for us, please. Anyone there? Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 16 to verse 20. Good evening. Hi, um, Hebrews chapter 6, yep. verse 16 to 20 from ESV version. Um, and then have and then have fallen away to restore. Sorry, 16, right? Yes, yeah, 16. Oh, sorry, 16. Okay. Um, for people swear by something greater than themselves, mm -hmm. and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a foreigner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm not going to go into, into so much explanation of the background details. Let me go straight to the verses that are important to me um, for this study right now. Verse 18 says, you know, by two immutable things of which it is, it is impossible for God to lie, right? And those two, two things are his um, eternal counsel and then he confirming it with an oath, all right? But then he says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation um, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Let me explain that. You know, po- the writer of Hebrews, right, um, says here that we that have, you know, says we might have a strong consolation. You know, if, if, if I give you a promise, for instance, right, and before that promise, again, let me go back to my example. Let me use Brother Silas again as an example. If I promise Brother Silas a 2022 Mercedes Benz, but I told him to he will get it in January, right? If between now and January. Um, let's say he, he uses public transport in the process of using public, public transport. Maybe one day he was coming down from the bus or the car and then his shirt tears because the car is very ro- ro- rugged and rusty. And then maybe another time he couldn't find um, public transport and then he had to go to work late. And so all of those things are happening because he doesn't have a car. However, there's an expectation for it. What I will now do for to Brasilis is I'll call him and console him and give him an assurance that he will get it. Now that assurance is a, is a consolation for him. So Paul was saying that those of us that have, so Paul was saying that because of the, uh, because of these two immutable things, God's eternal purpose and him confirming it with an oath, we have a consolation. Why do we have a consolation? It says we who have fled to fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And he was explaining our Christianity, basically, um, explaining the hope we have in Christ, that those of us that have fled for refuge in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> right, those of us that have fled from the issues um, from the world to look for refuge in Jesus Christ, even though there's a hope that is still ahead of us and we might be going through circumstances um, on earth that may not be very pleasant, we have a consolation because of the promise of God and his eternal purpose, all right? So that we may have consolation, those of us that have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that has been set before us. And last week, we dealt a lot about what this hope means. Um, the hope of the coming of Jesus Christ, the hope of our union with him, the hope of our, our bodies being trans, transformed into new bodies or we receiving a new bodies rather, all this hope is still ahead of us, but God gave us a consolation in his promise and his eternal purpose. Now, concerning this hope, look at what he says in verse 19. He says that this hope we have as an anchor for our soul, both sure and steadfast, which steadfast, which entered into within the veil. Now, before I go to the beginning part, let me explain something about this hope. I know that when we talk about faith, right? Um, or um, faith towards things materially or towards things on this earth, there's also the element of hope that comes in. Meaning, if God promises you, for instance, that you're going to have a, um, a, a multi-million dollar company, right? His promise to you gives you hope. Now, because of that hope, you can begin to act in faith towards 
that promise, all right? Now that is hope in, con in a particular context, but the hope I'm talking about here is with respect to our salvation, not just with respect to the manifestation of the promises of God here on earth alone, all right? Now he says that we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. So the hope of we have in Christ Jesus is an anchor for our soul. And why does our soul need anchor? This is very important because, um, again, let, let me explain what an anchor is before I, 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 I um, relate it to, to the experiences of our soul. Now, when a ship um, comes to a, to, a, to a shore, to the harbor, right? Uh, meaning the ship, in the, if we use it, for, um, use it, if we use the terminology of a car, the ship wants to park, all right? But now because the ship is on water, it wants to stay steady. Um, if you swim, you know that water can literally take you anywhere. Let me give you guys a um, random story. So last two weeks, I think, I went to, forgive me, but I don't know how to swim yet. It's part of my goals for this year. But um, so I went to, to the swimming pool with um, friends of my wife and I, and then some of our friends. Um, so they're basically giving me the rudiments of swimming and they say, just, you know, close your eyes. Don't, you know, don't breathe, um, hold your breath, go under the water, allow the water carry you. That was where I stopped. I, I, I have not yet trusted the water to carry me. And that's where I learned practically, you know, when we hear that Peter walked on water, if you swim, then you know that that is a lot of faith to walk on water. All right, but let's come back to my example. So the ship is on water. But the water can, the waves of the water can take the ship where it doesn't want it to go. So what the, the sailor or the, the captain of the ship does is the captain releases what is called an anchor. Now, an anchor could be a heavy, very heavy metal that goes down to the bottom of the sea. And what that anchor does is it prevents the waves of the sea from taking the ship away. Or the anchor could be a strong, you know, either metal or rope that is fasting to something that is stationary, all right? So that if the waves of the sea tries to take the ship away, that anchor holds it firm from being carried away by the waves. Now, using this analogy, the Bible says, this hope we have in Christ is an anchor for our soul, meaning that our soul can experience waves that try to take it away from this anchor. And this hope is anchored to Jesus Christ, who is stationary, who is fixed, who doesn't move anywhere, all right? He's, he's called the rock of ages because he doesn't, doesn't move. <clears throat> now, this hope serves as the anchor that holds our soul tied to Jesus Christ, all right? That anchors our soul to Jesus Christ. And why is that important? Because while we are expecting the hope and the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are so many waves that could try to take our soul away from, from Christ. There could be waves of doubt, meaning you go through circumstances that you that that makes you doubt God, or that has the potential to make you doubt God. We go through um, experiences that that um, make us depressed. You go through experiences that leave you confused. And you know what we what we read in. Let me just go back to this. What we read in Second Corinthians chapter five. These are waves that try to take away our soul. Second Corinthians chapter four. Sorry, Second Corinthians chapter four verse. Um, particularly verse eight says we are troubled on every side. So troubled is a wave that tries to take away us, uh, that tries to take us away our soul from Jesus Christ. He says we are 
perplexed on every side, perplexity, you know, that state of confusion where you just don't know what to do. It is a wave that tries to take away our soul. We are persecuted. Persecution is a wave that could break your soul if you are not anchored to Jesus, meaning you are persecuted for righteousness and you are just like um, Job's wife said to Job, curse God and die, meaning just deny God. That is the soul essence of persecution. Persecution comes to break your soul, makes you to deny Jesus or makes you deny your conviction in Christ Jesus. Um, he says we are, we are also cast down, meaning your, your hope has been dashed. You, you put in all your effort for something. You did something for the, in the name of the Lord and everything just crumbled. You are cast down. It's a wave. And if our soul is not anchored to Jesus, these waves will take us away from Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So what Hebrews is saying here that this hope we have is an anchor for our soul. And this is why it is important that we keep reminding ourselves of the reminding ourselves of the hope we have in Christ Jesus because the enemy comes with different waves, different waves, different waves. Remember the story in um Revelation, when the woman just gave birth, the Bible says that the dragon released water, water to swallow the child. That's what the enemy does, releases waves of water to swallow us up. But thank God we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. Praise the Lord. All right, so let's move on now. Um, let's look at John, first John, sorry, first John chapter three, verse one to three. We read the scripture last week and we're going to read it again and um, do a little bit of in-depth, you know, study and just look at some things very important um, in, in this scripture. Um, to be honest, I literally just have like three or so scriptures to for us today, but we would dissect those scriptures, all right? So permit me, First John chapter three, verse one to three. Uh, first John, the book of the gospel of first John, uh, not the gospel, sorry, the letter, the epistle of first John chapter three, verse one to three. Okay. It says, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God or should be called the children of God. He says, therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Um, and John here was exclaiming that what manner of love God has bestowed upon us. And, you know, the, the expression of God's love to us is revealed in the fact that we are called the children of God. That is one of the expressions of God's love for you, for us. So if you go through experiences that make you question the love of God, don't, don't, you know, what the enemy does is he tries to equate God's love to your experiences and says, if God loves you, why is this happening to you? If God loves you, why, why, um, why are you still experiencing what you're experiencing or what, why did this happen? Why did you lose that business? Deal? Why did you lose a loved one? Why didn't you get that job offer if God really loves you? But God's love is not demonstrated first in an external action. It is first of all, demonstrated in a change of our identity. And that's what John was saying here, that what manner of love has God loved us, that we should be called the sons of God, we should be identified as the children of God. So the ultimate proof of God's love for us is in our identity. So my question, every time the enemy comes to question um, God's love for you, your response should be that I am the son of God. I am the child of God. I'm the daughter of God. Um, if the devil comes to question 
whether God loves you or not, first thing you should ask yourself is, am I still the child of God? If the answer is yes, then your God loves you, all right? But let's move on to verse two says, it says, beloved, now are we the sons of God, but it does, does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So in essence, you're saying that um, it doesn't yet appear or it is not yet obvious what we shall be like, but we know that when Jesus Christ comes, we will be like him and we shall see him as he is. Now, verse three is where my, where my emphasis is. It says, and every man that has this hope in him purified himself even as he is pure. So the hope that we have of seeing Jesus Christ, the hope that we have of um, receiving Jesus Christ and, and being with him, the Bible says that everybody who has this hope does something. He purifies himself. And um, this is very instructive because what it tells us is everyone who has the hope of seeing Jesus Christ, everyone who has the hope of meeting Jesus Christ, everyone who has the hope of um, of, of seeing Jesus Christ as he is, they do something that they purify themselves. So remember I said that our hope has an implication on this earth. And again, let me use my, go back to my example um, with Brother Silas, right? If I promise Brother Silas a, um, a brand new car, like I've been saying, um, if I promise Brother Silas a brand new car, and the fact that he's expecting a car from me if already influences his action currently, even though the car has not come. So one of the things Brasilias will do, for instance, is he'll begin to, let's assume in his compound, um, there, there, there was really no space for a car or, or the space wasn't prepared for a car. Maybe just different things were, were put in there in his garage. What Brasilias will begin to do is he'll go to his garage and clear his garage so that the car can um, can fit in there when, when it comes. Um, he would begin to maybe buy a key holder or buy, you know, um, stickers for his car if he likes stickers or buy, you know, car seats. All these actions stem from the hope he has. It is the same way also that everyone who has the hope of, um, of seeing Jesus Christ, there's something they do. And the first thing they do is they purify themselves. Now, I want to dwell on this for a little bit. Um, just that word, purify themselves. And it says, um, every man that has this hope, first John chapter three, verse three, every man that has this hope in himself, purify it. Everyone that has this hope in him, purify himself, even as he is pure. That's even as Jesus is pure. Now I want to, like I said, I want to focus on this for a bit. I want to zoom in on this. Um, so first of all, is that when he says purify himself, or he uses the word purification or consecration um, as an alternative word, this does not refer to the righteousness we receive when we get born again, all right? So the righteousness we receive um, is an imputed righteousness from Jesus Christ. And for that one, there is nothing we do to earn it. There is nothing we do, do, do aside just receiving it. There's not, no action required on our part aside receiving it. Jesus Christ did all the work. All we have to do is receive that righteousness. So in that, in that regard, or for that righteousness, there is no responsibility placed on us aside to receive what Jesus has freely given to us. And nobody should deceive us out of this reality. 
that our righteousness in Christ is first and foremost imputed to us. And that imputed righteousness does not require our effort or our impute. We all only just surrender to Jesus and we receive his righteousness. He has done the work, we receive the reward, all right? But this purity here is not referring to that righteousness, to that imputed righteousness. Purity here refers to the, to a, you know, in fact, I was reading a commentary earlier today, and it says that this purity refers to the ceremonial cleaning. And the idea here is, um, back in the in um, in Judaism or, or back before uh, before Jesus Christ came or under the law, there was a requirement for some ceremonial cleaning that required your own action, and that is the concept that purity here connotes. That the action that is your responsibility. That's why the Bible says that everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself. It does not mention God in this equation. This is your responsibility. This is your action. Of course, there's a supply of God's grace to enable us. However, this is dependent. This is your responsibility primarily. All right. Um, so just, just to um, explain, sorry for those of us on Zoom, my video is turned off because um, we're out of power and I am currently the only one at home. So I can't turn on the alternate path. So just bear with me, enjoy my voice and please don't be distracted, all right? Okay, so. He said, this purity is your responsibility. And that's the first thing I want to point out here, that this purity is not, is not what you're waiting for God to do. It is your responsibility and it is yours to take that action. So our hope in, in Christ is expected to stir in us a consecration, meaning that you look at a promise that God has for you and he's coming and it should make you say, because of what is coming, I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to purify myself, you know, because of the hope that God has, God has promised me. Again, back to the example I used last week for a bride or for a, for a lady rather who, who, who is just engaged. So imagine this wonderful guy has engaged this lady, giving her the engagement ring and says what, you know, I'm going to marry you. Um, I just, I, this is my, my token of my commitment to you. And he gives her a ring. Now that is what we call an engagement, right? Even though the wedding has not yet happened, but because of the engagement, the lady separates herself from other men. The lady separates herself from the advances of other men. You know, other guys may come around and say, um, oh, you know, you're so beautiful. I'm interested in you. The lady will say, oh, no, don't worry. I'm already engaged. Um, other person will come and say, you know what? I have money. You know, I can give you money right now. Just give you a, a hundred million naira right now. But the lady says, no, I'm already engaged. Um, other person says, you know what? Just come, just let's hang out, you know, have some few drinks late into the night. And the lady says, no, I'm already engaged. That is consecration. She's consecrating herself because of the engagement that she has with another man. Even though the man, let's say, has traveled to a, a far country because of business, but and he's not physically present with the lady, but because of that commitment, she separates herself from other, other men and other things that would jeopardize her engagement. That is exactly what our, our response should be to the hope we have in Christ. That because... God has engaged us, and I explained this a lot last week, because God has engaged us and given us the seal of the Holy Spirit or the pledge of the Holy Spirit, or using my analogy, the engagement 
ring of the Holy Spirit in quotes, all right, because of that engagement, there should be a level of consecration that we should practice because of the promise we have in Jesus Christ. And what this tells us is that you can tell somebody who is anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just from the words they say, but from the life that they live. The, the consecration on their, life, on their lives is an evidence of their expectation of the coming of Jesus Christ. And again, I said earlier that I know most of this, I, I mean, many times it's not, this is not preached in church a lot, but this is the reality of what God expects from us, that our <clears throat> expectation of the hope in glory, our expectation of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ should stir up in us a level of consecration and purity that reflects our anticipation of his coming. Praise God. All right. Okay. So remember I said here that, and I want to explain this a little further, that when we talk about this consecration or this purity, this is different from um, righteousness that is imputed unto us. So I want to, I want to just quickly um, show us some differences. All right. Um, just list out some differences and to help our understanding. So to start with, number one, the righteousness we receive from God is imputed when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. There is nothing we do to earn that righteousness. All we do is just to receive it into our lives and it is automatic, all right? Um, but the consecration I'm talking about is not so. Okay, so difference number one, all right? So if you're writing, um, please, you, you could do well to jot this down. But difference number one is that our righteousness is an identity, all right? is an identity, but our consecration is an action. So what I mean is I can come up today and declare and say that I, I identify myself as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And I am correct, but I cannot come and say I identify myself as being consecrated. It's not, it's not by, I cannot, it's not by identification, it's by actions. My consecration has to translate into activities, into actions. So for instance, I say, I cannot go to this place right? Because I am consecrated to God. I cannot keep this kind of company because I'm consecrated to God. I cannot entertain this kind of conversations around my personal space because I am consecrated to God. I cannot spend my money in a particular way because I'm consecrated to God. Um, I cannot, you know, do things, things that translate to an action. So action proves your, your consecration. Whereas for righteousness, like I said, you don't need to do anything. You just need to receive and you identify yourself as one who is righteous. And, and that is all. So righteousness is an identity, but consecration is a lifestyle reflected by actions. All right. Number two. Wait, before I go to number two, let me know if we're together. Just drop a comment and let me know that you are with me. You can drop a comment and say, I am with you, Victor, or I hear you or you understand that, or give a thumbs up so I know we are together on this. Um, drop a comment. Let me know we're together. Mixeller and Zoom. Okay, I am with you. Thank you. I allow your day. I see your comments. Anyone else? Who else is with me tonight? Or am I speaking too fast? Or am I speaking over your heads? Let me know you're with me. Just drop it in comments um, section. Uh, I've only seen one person. I would love to see at least someone else. 
If you're struggling to hear yes. fellas, it might be your network because I am also struggling to hear you. Um, so it might be your network though. Miracle, your hand is up. Is that you saying you are with me or is that you asking, wanting to ask a question? No, I'm with you. I'm with you. I was. Okay, thank you. Awesome. All right. So let's proceed then. Okay. So the first thing I said is righteousness is an identity. Consecration is. Um, a lifestyle reflected by our actions, okay? Number two here is that um, righteousness comes first before consecration, okay? Meaning that your consecration will not, you cannot even claim to be consecrated to God if you first and foremost have not re received the righteousness that he provides, all right? So righteousness comes first. That's the first thing that gives to you when you... Um, a, when you come to him, when you become a Christian and a believer, he gives you his righteousness. He gives you his right standing. So righteousness comes first, but after you've received righteousness, what comes next is con consecration. What is expected next is consecration. Not the other way around. You don't consecrate yourself to become righteous. No, you consecrate yourself because you are righteous. Let me take that again. You don't consecrate yourself to become righteous. You consecrate yourself because you are righteous. So if you do not receive the righteousness that is from God, there's no way you can claim to be, be consecrated or you can begin to live out consecration, all right? So um, righteousness comes first and then consecration comes next. Okay, difference number three. That is that for righteousness, and I already said this, but let me repeat it again. For righteousness, God does the work and we receive the reward. So God does the work of, of, of um, purchasing our salvation and making righteousness available for us. All we do is just to receive the reward of all that Jesus Christ has done. All the, the, the reward of his death, burial, and resurrection. We receive it um, in, our, in righteousness. So God does the work. In righteousness, God does the work and we receive the reward. But as we proceed into consecration, we do the work and then God receives the reward of our consecration. All right. And what I mean by that is we do the work of purifying ourselves and consecrating our lives to God. And in turn, God receives the harvest of a consecrated life from us. So we do the work in consecration, but God receives the reward. Now, let me let me put a disclaimer here so I'm not misunderstood. Now, I am not saying, I am not saying that God is not involved in consecration. God is involved in the sense that he supplies the grace, but grace that is not put to work does not yield results, and you would have to put the grace to work. That is why Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. If we stop there, right, we'll assume that it was God that was doing it. So Paul did not do anything. But look at what he said next. He says, um, the grace, I am what I am by the grace of God. He says, the grace of God upon my life was not without effect, right? He says, I labor more than them all. So there's a labor that grace that grace sponsors. He says, I labor more than them all. He says, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. So grace is the energy right? And the fuel that, that drives our labor. However, we must take that take the responsibility of consecrating ourselves. 
Okay, so what that means is God will not come and stop you from, let's say, listening to a particular song, but he will supply the grace for you to not listen to that song. It is left for you to employ that grace and say, I will not listen to this kind of songs because I am consecrated to God, or I will not do X, Y, Z because I'm consecrated to God. So grace is available for everybody. And we're going to look at that um, um, before the end of today. Grace is available to everybody, but not everyone, everybody uses grace. All right. So number three difference, like I said, is that in righteousness, God does the work, we receive the reward, but in consecration, we do the work and God receives the reward of a consecrated life. Number four is that um, baby Christians tend to stop at righteousness. And it's obvious because there's no much responsibility in that on that level. And so a lot of baby Christians tend to relax on the fact that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, God has given us everything freely. He has died for us. We don't need to do anything. All we need to do is to receive and we end here. That's where baby Christians stop. But mature believers move on to consecration because that is responsibility. And it is only responsibility that we become mature. The Bible says um, strong meat belongs to those who through use meaning through practice, have, have you know, um, strengthened their senses to discern between good and evil. And that's the responsibility of maturity, that you exercise yourself, you, you take on responsibility. And that is where mature believers go into, consecration, all right? Uh, so baby believers stay on the level of righteousness, but mature believers move on to consecration. Number, number four, or number next, now this should be number five, is that, and this will be the last one now, under righteousness, you are loved by God, but doesn't mean God will use you. So the person who just stops at receiving righteousness, all right, God obviously loves you. In fact, God loves the whole world. God loves you. Yes, he does love you, but it does not mean he would use you. And this is what a lot of people mistake that the fact God loves somebody does not mean he will use the person. So imagine, think about a father, let's say that has two sons, one older son and the one younger son. The older son has grown to be mature. The father loves him, of course. Um, the younger son, the father still loves the younger son, but he's not very mature yet. So even though the father loves the younger son and still provides the, for the needs of the younger son, it does not mean the, the father will hand over his business to the younger son because the younger son has not grown into maturity. So the love of the father is not in question, but the maturity of the child is what is in question. But the older son, the father not only loves the son, but the son has become mature enough for the father to hand over responsibility to that son, and that's what the father will do. So in righteousness, God loves you, but it does not mean he would use you. But in consecration, God now, God does not only love you, but you have qualified for God to use you. And let me say something that I heard my pastor say, and I'll never forget. God does not use anything or anyone that is not consecrated to him. Never. God loves everybody, quite all right. But you see, when it comes to God using you, there is consecration that he will demand from you. And the level of consecration you submit yourself to is the, is the extent to which God will use you. So baby Christians stop at righteousness. 
they love God. And, and this is something very common. You, you, if you've been around a Christian for a while, you must have seen this. There are those people that are just basking in the fact that, oh, God loves me. God loves me. And, and they say, it doesn't matter what I do. God loves me, which is true. God loves you regardless, but God will not use you regardless. No, God will not use you regardless. He would use you because you are consecrated. So God loves you in spite of what you do, but God will not use you in spite of what you do. He will use you because you are consecrated. Do you understand that? And we must move from, from that level of just enjoying righteousness and staying there to consecration where God can entrust the kingdom to us. And he knows that the kingdom would advance in our hands because we've consecrated our lives um, to him. All right? And, you know, 2 Timothy, we're, we're far out of time, so I may not be able to dwell on this very much, but let me just say, okay, let me try and just read, let me, I'll just quote it for you. 2 Timothy chapter um, 2, verse 19 to 21, please go take your time to read it, but it was basically saying that um, in, a, in a large house, there are many vessels, um, some to honor, some to dishonor, and all of that, vessels of silver, of gold, and of, of clay, but then it says that those who purify themselves of the latter would become vessels unto honor. And it's an interesting concept that in a, in a house, a vessel can determine how it will be used, not even the owner, but the vessel itself. And what that means is you can determine if God will use you for noble purposes or not. And how do you determine that? Is by purifying yourself, is by consecrating yourself. And check this, there's nobody that is used of God or has been used of God that was not consecrated. If anybody stops, if God stops using a particular person, most often than not, it's because the person's consecration had dropped or ceased entirely. So as we as we grow into maturity, our focus should not just be the righteousness of God. That is that is not, not cheap, that is free, right? Righteousness is free. There's no responsibility on your part aside receiving it. It is not cheap. God, Jesus paid the price, but it is free for you because there's nothing you do aside receiving it. So we should move from that into the responsibility that consecration demands. All right? Okay, so I said something here that I want to read out to us. Um, just as I wrap that thought up, consecration without righteousness is legalism. Consecration without righteousness is legalism. Righteousness without consecration is carnality. Righteousness without consecration is carnality. Let me take that again. Consecration without righteousness is legality. What that means is if you somebody, for instance, doesn't know God, and there are really people like that um, who they don't know God, but they live very pious, you know, quote unquote, pious lives. Um, if you check other religions um, that do not know God, you find out that there are, some of them are really even strict. Um, I mean, you already know religions that their ladies, they, they don't just even, not that they don't, they don't wear you know, mini skirts and all of that, but they cover themselves from head to toe. There are people that um, don't even drink as much as coffee, let alone even alcohol or anything like that. That means they have, they have a lot of quote unquote consecration, but because there is no righteousness, that consecration equals to legalism. So they are trying to become right with God based on their actions. And that is exactly what legalism is. They are trying to be right with God. They are trying to be um, to be to to end their own righteousness by their works. That is legalism. So consecration or an, or an attempt for consecration or an attempt to consecration without um, righteousness is legalism. 
However, on the flip side, righteousness without consecration is carnality. So somebody that has received the, the gift of righteousness has come to Jesus Christ, received the gift of righteousness, but refused to separate him, he, his or herself from the activities of the world. That's what the Bible calls carnality. So you still indulge in the things you used to do when you were an unbeliever. You still um, um, say the words you used to say when you were an unbeliever, or you still listen to the songs you used to listen to when you were an unbeliever. You still go to the places you used to go to when you're an unbeliever, that is carnality. So yes, you have received the righteousness of God, but you have not, you are not yet li living a consecrated life to God. All right. So I hope this is clear enough, the differences I, I, I brought out. Let me conclude with a passage of scripture um, for us today. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 11 to 13. Please, somebody should read for us very quickly so that we can wrap up on this and we can... Um, I would love to hear our thoughts on this and um, ask your questions if you do have. So let's read Second Second Timothy chapter uh, chapter. Sorry, forgive me. Not Second Timothy. Titus chapter two, verse eleven to thirteen. The book of Titus chapter two, verse eleven to thirteen. Somebody should please go ahead and read for us. Okay, I read Titus two eleven to. 13, right? Yes, please. From the New Living Translation, it says, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you very much. So you see that, I mean, starting from verse 13, where it says, why we look forward to that day where um, the glorious hope of our Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed. He says, while we're looking at that, there's something that we should be doing or there's a way we should live. And that is what verse 11 and 12 now tells us. He says that first and foremost, he says the grace that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, meaning that um, the possibility of salvation is available because of grace. Now, this grace that brings salvation is available to everybody. It has appeared to all men, whether you are from the north, south, east, west, anywhere you are in the world, this grace has appeared to all men, all right? And everyone who partakes of that, everyone who gets, right, partakes, has partaken of the grace of God that brings salvation. And this is very straightforward to understand, especially because we're, we're, most of us are believers, all right? But the next thing it says in verse 2 of is that, in verse 12 is that this grace doesn't, this same grace that brought salvation also does something else. It says, teaching us. Now, before I even continue, I want to just emphasize something here that the grace that brought salvation doesn't only stop at bringing salvation. It also goes further to teach us something. So if you receive the grace that brought salvation, don't just stop there. Go further to, to obey what the grace says. All right. So I said that don't only receive what the grace brought, obey what the grace teaches. 
Because the same grace that brought salvation teaches something. A lot of people stop at the fact that the grace brought salvation and it's exciting. They're happy. Oh, I'm saved. I'm delivered. I'm free. Hallelujah. Fantastic. But the grace that brought salvation did not only bring salvation. It also teaches something. So when you receive the grace, don't stop halfway. Go further to look for what the grace teaches. And this is what the grace teaches in verse 12. It says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. I mean, I'm reading from the King James Version. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Amazing. So with emphasis to this present world, there is a way we should live. And this is why, again, I do not see anywhere in scripture that says believers are permitted to live anyhow they like. There's a, there's a code of conduct. Just think about it. You join a company and a company says, as part of, um, as, as, as being part of this company, there's a code of conduct everybody is expected to have. And then they go on to list different things. This is a natural company. How about a spiritual family? I don't believe that when you come to Christ, you can still live anyhow. No, there is a, you know, Jesus Christ said, take upon you my yoke. Says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Even though God has saved us from the yoke of the enemy, he does not leave us yokeless. He brings us under his own yoke. There is no time you will never, you will ever be without a yoke. You will always be with a yoke. The choice is whose yoke are you going to bear? The yoke of the devil or the yoke of Jesus Christ. All right. So the grace teaches us that we should live in a certain way. And I just want to quickly highlight the three things that it talks about in that verse 12. It says, um, in this world, we should live soberly, as the King James Version puts it, soberly, righteously, and godly. Just to give a quick insight into these three things, right? The first one, when you say soberly, the, that word soberly also means moderately or, or temperately or with self-control. And this is talking about the manner in which we admit the and appropriate the blessings of God in our lives or the manner in which we live um, as regards the provisions that God has, has brought to us. There's an expectation of a moderate life, a self-controlled life. And a very good um, area is, is the area of finances, especially. And, and that's just an example. It's not, that's not the limit. Um, moderation is not limited to that alone, but that is, is a very good example to use. That as God increases you, as God blesses you, there is the propensity to spend and show how lavish you are or show how much you have. And, you know, just put it out there that, you know what, I'm, I, I don't blow. I'm big now. I can do what I want to do. But the Bible says you should live moderately. All right. And the reason why God wants us to live moderately is because moderation is God's way of keeping our hearts intact. Okay. So moderation deals with us, deals with our hearts. Because if, if you don't, if you don't um, live a moderate life, what will happen is that things will have you instead of you having things. And that's what moderation does. That moderation keeps your heart from slipping into excess. Moderation means that you, you have things, but things don't have you. So moderation means you can have money, but money does not have you. All right. And this deals with us, our hearts. This, this, this deals with our inward in what state of the inward state of our hearts. Now, the second thing he mentioned there is we should live righteously. Remember, there are three things. He says live soberly or live moderately, live righteously, and then live godly. Um, 
The second thing mentions is, is righteously. And this righteousness here is not referring to the righteousness we receive from Jesus, all right? But no, it's referring to the righteousness in, in the sense of a, a just life. A, so think of righteousness from the, a legal perspective, an equitable life. And this refers to our dealings with people, that we should act right with the way we deal in the way we deal with people. So if I, let me just use Brother Silas because I've been using him as my example. If I am Brother Silas, for instance, are, um, you know, going to business based on trust, God is expecting that I treat Brother Silas in that business deal rightly. I do things that are just. If the profit was supposed to be shared 50, 50, 50, right? And then I make a profit of, let's say, um, a million naira. God is expecting that that profit should be shared 50-50. I should not invent another way of reducing what I, what I present as a profit so that I can take the rest you know, at the back to myself. No, God is expecting that righteous dealing with Brasilas. If somebody helps me, God is expecting to treat the person right. And even when the people... People don't help you or even when they've not done anything necessarily good to you, God is expecting that you treat them righteously. That's what righteousness here means. You know, and, and just something to help us in our study of the Bible. It is not every instance, it's not every place that the, the Bible uses the word righteousness that it refers to the free gift of righteousness. In many other places, righteousness refers to our dealings on earth, physical dealings with people on earth. And this is one of such um, instances, all right? So under this this righteousness now deals with our relations towards other people, okay? Remember, um, 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 moderation or living a moderate life deals with our rela relationship with our hearts, right? Um, righteousness now deals with the, our relationship with other people. That's acting just in our ways, avoiding deceit in our dealings with others and all the likes. So this is with respect to our dealings with other people. The third thing he mentions is godliness. Um, he says, um, you know, soberly, righteously, and then godly, all right? And this now talks about piety or, or pious, yeah, piety, all right? Meaning being living a, a pious life. And this now specifically refers to our devotion towards God. So whereas um, living in moderation talks about deals with the attitude of your heart, right? That's internal towards yourself. Righteousness deals with your, your interactions with people, right? How you, do, you, you act and deal towards others. Um, godliness now deals with your devotion towards God. How your, your life is lived to please God. How your life should be lived in service to God himself, okay? So don't forget, don't forget these three things. That God is expecting our life on earth because of the hope we have in Christ, our life on earth should reflect these three things. Our um, relationship with our hearts, and that is, that is, is, um, that is moderated by, by self-control, by, by being sober, being moderate in your, in your living, because you want to guard the state of your heart. Number two is righteousness. Righteousness here referring to your dealings with people, how you treat people, how you interact with people, not acting deceitfully, you know, not saying one thing and then going, going behind the back of the person to say another thing. You know, let's say a miracle comes and confides in me about something she's going, she's going 
through. And then I, I, in that place of confidence, I take that information and I go to my, 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 let's assume I'm Miracle working same company. I go and just my other colleagues and says, you know what, can you even imagine Miracle is going through this and this and that? No, that is not, that is not living right. That is not righteousness towards, um, towards people. All right. And then the third thing is godliness, our devotion towards God. All right. I hope I haven't spoken so fast, but I've just been trying to beat with um, beat the time, uh, stay in, stay within the time we have. But this brings us to the end of everything I wanted to share with us today. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear from us. Do we have any questions, or do you have even maybe a comment, something that you really want to share based off of what I what something I said earlier? Just a contribution or a, a question or a comment. Um, please feel free to go ahead. We have just five minutes for this. Anybody can go, if you're on Zoom, just feel free to unmute your mic and speak. If you're on Mixeller, you can type out what your questions are or what your comments or your contributions are um, today. Somebody is speaking. Good evening, sir. Hi, good evening, Alaridi. I'm fine. Thank you so much, sir, for the word of God. Thank God. I have this question. Okay, go ahead. This empower scheme, whereby we have some children of God in the scheme, and then they don't go to their uh, PPA, or maybe they show up once in a while, but then they kept on. They keep on receiving the the uh, stipend from the scheme. What level can we categorize such Christians? <laughs> Do we say they only have righteousness? There's no consecration? Or is it just okay? Some people, they call it national cake. That's the stepping from, from it could be for anybody. I don't know if you get my question, sir. Okay, yeah, I think I, I, I think I know what you're saying. Okay. Um, I mean, I do not know, I've not like, I don't know much about this empire scheme, but from what you've you've asked, I sort of get the idea. So yes, you already asked, started answering it. Number one is, um, the, yes, there's righteousness, but there's no consecration. Um, and maybe we'll do a study on work ethics and what, see what the Bible says about work, but collecting money for something you don't work for is, is I, I mean, deceitfully now, it's um, not is not God's standard. It's not God's righteousness. It's not the way God operates. If someone decides to give you money just out of favor and they dash you the money, of course that's fine. Take it. But if you if you committed to doing a work and decided not to do it and you are still collecting money, no, 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 it's destroying you. First of all, spiritually, it is not good, and even in terms of your moral ethics, it is not good as well. So just to answer your question, it is not good. Okay, so what, so what about somebody who has been in, in a kind of hardship and then this king just clicked for him or for her, but then he is not, so she's not in that, uh, in that area where he or she will be able to really perform the duties that come along with the scheme. And the person okay. is now seeing it as God's blessing. Okay, so I first of all, like First of all, right, there will be no justification of hardship. There's no hardship that justifies 
um, anything dubious, just to say that there's no justice that there's no hardship rather ju that justifies that. Now there could be peculiar situations, and we have to work work out something that will still be under the righteousness of God. And this is where I mean to answer this question in detail. It will be I will need a lot more context to say what can be done. But just to first say on a general note that there will be no justification that would there will be no sorry um, suffering that would justify um, dubiousness. So just take that this example to something even larger. So let's assume somebody has been let's say in poverty and suffering, and the person gets a a politic political role as a commissioner, and the person says this is now my time to all the money that I've not had for the past. 20 years, it's time to get it now. Does mm. that person's hardship justify him stealing money from public funds? Of course, no. after that, we know. So the, apply the same thing as well. There'll be no amount of hardship that will justify um, dubious dealings um, before God, yeah. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. All right, anybody else wants to share something they learned or a question or a you know contribution? I have something to say. Thank you so much, sir. Good evening, everyone. Yeah, good evening. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir, for the wonderful teaching. It's been wonderful. Although my network um, was a bit terrible, I missed a couple of uh, parts. I wanted to even take down notes, but uh, I couldn't. So I want to request, or I wish to humbly request, if you can get the slides later. And then for me, the most striking thing I learned was that um god loves everyone but he does not use everyone mm. that though we have an imputed righteousness we need to move for that to consecrated christians until unless we become consecrated yeah Okay, so I think your, your line is breaking up. Um, uh, we're struggling to hear you currently, but from what I what I heard you say, um, just where you're sharing what you learned about um, the fact that even though God loves everyone, he doesn't use everybody. We need to move further to the level of consecration for him to use us. And absolutely great. Um, concerning the first thing you mentioned, um, yes, I can share the slides, but also the, this session is recorded and the link will be made available in the um, you know the WhatsApp group so you can go back and listen to any part that you might have missed. But yes, I'll do well to make the okay. notes available. Okay, you're welcome. You're welcome. All right, one last person. I haven't seen any comments on Mr. Please don't forget to drop your comments. Okay, I'll take one more person in 30, in one minute, and then we would wrap up and close. Anybody wants to say anything else? Ask a question, um, contribute, please. This is a Bible study, so feel free to share something that's blessed you today or something that you've learned. You know, someone else might learn from what you have learned. Hi, good evening. Your voice is faint. Hello, can you hear me? Uh, I is think it's a bit better. Is it better now? Uh, yes. If it can be louder, we'll be grateful, but we can manage this. Okay, can you hear me now? 
Perfect. Uh, so, so I just wanted to share like the one the one of the many things that I, I really enjoyed from this session, and it was just uh, encouraging me. Uh, will I say, don't stop where you are. Sort of pushing me to try and do more for God, so so to speak. Um, uh, because just like what what we read in um, First Thessalonians, uh, First Timothy, sorry. And that, yes, he has given us grace and we have enjoyed his grace so far, but I shouldn't stop there. I should push, I should, I should try and do more. You know, a lot of times they'll say, um, no, it's not about what you do for God. He loves you regardless. But what you are doing is actually what sort of makes the difference between you and the next person. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know he loves us all, but then they, they, you can't just keep doing something for somebody. Uh, and not expecting anything in return. Even agape love is not that, like that. Mm -hmm. But I'm just, I'm just really encouraged to do more for God, and and I, I really enjoy that. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, all right. Thank you, everyone. So we're going to wrap up now. Uh, just before we we go, okay. Let, let's say a word of prayer first before we close. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you for today. Well, I thank you for the, we thank you rather for the various things that you have taught us, you have shared with us. Um, we are grateful. First, we are grateful for the eternal work you have done for us and for making righteousness available to us for free. We are grateful. Lord, we ask for the grace to move further to live consecrated lives so that we can be useful to you and useful in your kingdom in the name of Amen. Jesus Christ. Father, we Amen. ask that whatever area we need to consecrate ourselves um, before you, help us, O oh Lord, show us and let us live consecrated lives um, all around. Every area of our lives will be consecrated to you. Our words, our actions, our finances, um, the way we treat people, we will live consecrated lives to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.